Before we get underway, a quick program note. Next Tuesday, January 12th, 2021, we will be hosting a special live event for the EdSurge podcast. It will take place on Zoom, of course, like any good event during the pandemic. We will be talking with all the students and professors who participated in our Pandemic Campus Diaries podcast series. So for regular listeners, you may feel like you know these folks already um, because you heard their struggles and hopes and fears all semester long during our eight-episode series that wove together moments from audio diaries that these folks kept while trying to keep their learning on track. This will be the first time they have met each other and talked as a group about their experiences. You can go to the Ed Surge podcast show page to find out all the details and RSVP. This is free, and, and you can tune in, ask questions, listen in on, on, on the conversation. And again, this is next Tuesday afternoon, January 12th. We hope you can join us. All right, on to this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, where each week we look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and reporter here at Ed Surge. This week, we're going to stop and reflect. 2020 was quite a year, and we produced, I think, a record number of episodes trying to make sense of this time. So on this episode, we're going to revisit some of what I think are the most memorable moments from our podcast in 2020. And I'm going to share some material that I wanted to get on previous shows, but but didn't quite fit. So you're going to hear some bonus material today. So one of our most popular episodes of the year was an interview I did with Michael Wesch, an anthropology professor at Kansas State University. I kind of thought this episode might go viral because I've interviewed Wesh a few times over the years, and, and he is one of the most creative and heartfelt professors that I've actually ever met. And he's known for making teaching videos that have gone viral. And sure enough, he shared an idea that I had never heard before that I think showed how he looked at teaching in a, a kind of a different way. than Here's the part I mean. One of the things that struck me the most, that surprised me the most, is that you read all the readings aloud into... And you basically do a book on tape of the class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, in a typical week, I'll assign, you know, three hours of content. Um, some of that content is created by me, um, you know, like original, you know, micro lectures and things like that. Um, and then some of that's created by others, you know, like the like you'd have readings in any class. But I look to, you know, engaging materials like podcasts, documentaries, things like that, which easily transfer into an audio-only format if they're not already audio-only. And then anything that's written, and I usually like to have at least, you know, one hour of written material, uh, especially like a nice big overview of things like, you know, from a text or like a, a core text, something like that. I, I'll read that. And and I, I don't, I, I want to be mindful of their time. So I don't offer a lot of commentary during that, but I do offer my enthusiasm. <laughs> you know, I try to I try to at least sort of be like a responsive audience to the reading, you know, so I'll be, I'll kind of add a little, oh, wow, like he's, you know, he's attacking our, that other person we're talking about in this class right now. You know, I'll just briefly mention that. And, uh, you know, students have said so many positive things about those readings. I've had students tell me that they've never read before and uh, having the, having me read for them, like, just changed their lives. Like it, it made them readers. Um, some students read along, some people uh, do it, you know, without the book at all and just while they're commuting or whatever. Um, but so, so many students have come back to me and talked about how important it was. 
not just to have the MP3, but to um, to hear my enthusiasm and my excitement for the ideas made made them excited about the ideas. I've just never heard of a professor do that. Have you? Did you get this idea from someone else, or you... I, I did not get it from someone else. I, I don't. I, I just seemed obvious to me <laughs> that it had to be done. <laughs> so you're because there is this idea, right? I hear a lot of faculty say things like. Um, oh, my, I'm so frustrated. My students don't do the reading and, and, you know, it sounds like you're almost saying some students don't do the reading, but instead of just blaming them or something, you're basically saying, okay, I'll read it to you. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I'm saying like, I get it, you know, man, I, I remember a lot of readings I didn't do when I was an undergrad and I had a lot of good reasons not to do it. Um, and I also had bad reasons or, you know, I think the biggest thing was I just wasn't into reading yet and I didn't know how awesome reading could be. Uh, I mean, this is a weird thing about my life, but I didn't read any books from about age nine until 19. And it was sort of like a mark of honor for me. You know, I I grew up in a small town and um, I was just around a lot of people who, you know, if you read, you you were a dork basically, right? So I just didn't read. And then I had a professor in college who assigned Michael Crichton novels in a neuroscience class. And I thought, well, this is crazy. You know, we're, re- we're reading Jurassic Park in neuroscience. Like, what's this about? You know, so I, I, I read Jurassic Park and man, my uh, heart just thumped so loudly with excitement of immersing into this world of reading. I, and I started going to libraries and bookstores and I mean, I could not contain my excitement. I, my heart would just be pounding looking at the books. You know, I just, I just get so excited and I wanted I wanted to do that for my students. You know, I, I know there's other students out there who are like me who uh, haven't discovered that joy yet, and I want to share that joy with them. These days, when my wife and I are putting the kids to bed, we're we're reading bedtime stories. But you know, our kids are little, and I remember when my parents did that for me, and it was kind of a magical time, and probably made me a reader. But Wesh is is putting in this kind of time of reading aloud to his students at the college level and having that sympathy and grace to realize that not everyone comes from families of readers. Anyway, it's it's a really interesting approach, and I hope, hope the idea catches on. Another clip I want to share comes from an episode we did back in July, and it was about rethinking final exams. The story took a turn I, I certainly didn't expect when we talked to Anthony Kreider, a professor at Elon University, who has for years now replaced traditional final exams in his class with what he calls epic finales. The idea is that instead of giving a multiple choice or essay test, this professor creates a kind of experience that that students have to work through together by applying the ideas they've learned in class to solve problems. They're working together, think something like an escape room, except for with academic material. And this professor went to extraordinary lengths to set up his epic finales. I mean, for one of them, he trained chickens to be part of the act. Here, check out this clip, which to understand it fully, you need to realize that the students all semester had been kind of doing some role-playing and even pretending they were in various alien civilizations that were pitted against each other. Have you ever had it fail, right? Have you had a group of students just not do what you're, this magical reaction? Well, I mean, the students react differently. And uh, back uh, during one of the very early ones, uh, it sort of gave us the definition of what it means to fail at one of these things. And so for their final exam, uh, 
that I had I trained three chickens uh, to eat and to come up to the door, uh, and I, they had two. I had two. Well, let me backtrack. I had two white vans show up to their classroom. The white vans drove them to a house. They knock on the door of the house. A garage door opens up. When they walk through the garage door, there are three chickens that run up to greet them because I trained the chickens for two months to do that. In the backyard, there's a table with three chicken pizzas, barbecue chicken pizzas, three cheese pizzas, and a bowl of sunflower seeds. One of the students uh, said, I think, I think, you know, do, do chickens eat sunflower seeds? And he started to question the group. Uh, but then another student uh, said, I think we're just supposed to eat. Like, there's a video camera on this whole thing, but, but she's just like, I think we're supposed to eat. And all that pizza was gone within five minutes. Um, I mean, the goal was that they would realize, like, this was the chicken's planet. Like, this was their world, and they were intruders into it. They, and I trained the chickens to, that if, I, if they'd sat down, they could have eaten these sunflower seeds with the chickens. Because they were sunflower seeds I bought at the grocery store. Or at least don't eat the chicken pizza in front of the chickens. Uh, but in that group, sort of just out of camera, but you could see it if you watched it, there was one student that was chasing the chickens around. Like, who who does that? Like, that's, like that, that's not just something that uh, you should have learned not to do, but just if you showed up on the first day of class, you wouldn't do that. Don't kick the chicken. Like, and that became the mantra that I, for future um, classes when I would teach them, like when I would tell them about the epic finales, I would say, as you're taking this finale, I can't tell you anything about it, but don't kick the chicken. Like, be thoughtful in what you do. Uh, think about the what your behavior is. Talk about what your behavior is. Uh, don't just be mindless and just, you know, go, go to your baser instincts. And in every class, there's one or two students that metaphorically kicks the chicken. Maybe it's ripping the head off of the robot, not thinking about, you know, like, oh, let's look inside. Well, wait, why, why are you ripping the head off of that? That's not, not good. And, but that's what we're, I'm hoping to see. I make, I don't make this worth a lot of their their final grade. Like I really, I, it doesn't, it's not meant to be punitive. It's not, it's meant for me to understand like how I failed or succeeded in teaching them what I was hoping to teach them. Don't kick the chicken. That's good advice in general, I think. Throughout the year, we experimented actually with different formats um, and not just doing uh, single interview episodes. Back in July, we did an explainer on a controversial new model of providing textbooks at colleges, where institutions charge everyone in a class a flat fee, and then everyone gets a digital copy of required materials instead of having students go out and buy them on their own. The goal is to save students money. But some professors and students have objected to the model, saying it actually takes away the the student's ability to shop around or even just go to the library and get books for free. My colleague Rebecca Koenig talk to a student who's been one of the most vocal opponents. And on that same episode, we talked to a college administrator who was running one of the programs to get a sense of how complicated it actually is to lower the cost of textbooks. Like other students posting on Reddit, 
The first objection Lang has to this kind of program is its price, that $199 cost per quarter.、Uh, this program will be providing digital e-books that expires at the end of the term, so you don't get to keep these e-books, and this essentially makes it a really expensive e-book rental program. And I've talked to my friends about this for a little bit, and. People have said that they don't pay anywhere close to two hundred dollars a quarter for textbooks,、um, and a lot of people are saying that on our、uh, UC Davis Reddit page, people are saying that the most that they pay for a quarter is about a hundred dollars, really because students are buying used textbooks or they're borrowing from the library. And the more you look into this program, the sort of the red flags start coming up because you know you realize that. Very few students are going to benefit from these programs,、um, and the bookstore director has also said that some students are going to pay more under these programs. And on top of that, the publishers will make a significantly more revenue with these equitable access programs. Publishers do stand to benefit financially from this kind of program. Lorgan, the administrator at UC Davis, admits. To go through the math on this. He used the example of a cognitive psychology textbook assigned in one of the university's introductory courses. The new book costs the university $167, and a used copy costs the university about $100. Through the bulk buying arrangement, however, each copy will cost the college just $39. Let's say there's 80 students in a course, and so remember the price used to be $167. And so we have 80 students. So I'm going to look for 80 books. And so, because I have an incentive currently to go after a used book because of price, I go to the publisher as an absolute last resort, and I only go to them for the balance of what I couldn't get used. So, the first quarter they get 100% of the sale because it's a new edition, right? But after the first quarter, most universities are pretty good at getting most of them used now. And so I'm so in that case I might get seventy used copies, which is zero seventy times zero dollars equals zero dollars going to the publisher, and then ten new copies times one hundred and sixty-seven dollars. That gives them one thousand six hundred and seventy dollars in revenue. In the old model, right? In the new model, where they've reduced their price to thirty-nine dollars. I'm now buying all 80 from the publisher. 80 times 39 is $3,120. So by them reducing their price in the neighborhood, in this case of like I think this one's like 60 or 70 percent, they've reduced their price. They've actually increased their overall revenue. And so when you look at the real drivers of cost. You know, it's sort of ironic because you know I've been doing this for 27 years, and for at least the first half of my decade, I strongly believed that used books lowered the cost of textbooks, and so the paradigm in my mind has shifted that used books actually significantly increase the cost of textbooks. Probably the most famous person we had on the podcast this year was author Dave Eggers. My colleague Tony Wan did this interview, and this was the the only episode he did this year. 
Regular listeners to the show will notice that I thank Tony at the end of every episode. He's the managing editor of Ed Surge. Anyway, I was excited when Eggers agreed to talk with us because I'm a big fan of his books, especially the ones that reflect on how tech is changing society. I sense that some of the themes that you shared in some of your um, works, like 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 the circle, right? Um, some of those themes we're seeing uh, emerge in technology and even in education technology as well, with issues like surveillance and and privacy and kind of rewarding people in a game, gamified system of points. And so, yeah, how do you? I don't. I don't know. How do how do we like kind of you know push back against that? Um, well, I, you know what's funny? I mean, I, you know, I use a laptop every day. I, uh, I send emails. I, um, I use Photoshop and ha- always have. I mean, there's so many tools that I've used. I had the first Apple computer when it came out. So I was an early adopter and, um, back then. And I think that, but, you know, I think increasingly there's, there's less choice about when you use technology and when you don't. And every year it becomes a little bit harder to do fundamental things without screens, without phones, without Wi-Fi. And I think that that's um, really unfortunate. And I think it's exclusionary. And I think it's, uh, uh, and it deprives deprives us of a necessary diversity of human experience on a given day, you know? Um, it deprives us of the ability to stop, to, to slow down, to, to uh, disconnect, to contemplate, to meditate, all of these things. And I think uh, why it has to be, I think that there is a mentality that's sort of overtaken humanity, which is really, I think, very odd for me, and I didn't see it coming at all. And I've been in San Francisco 25 eight years, um, that everything has to, you know, everything is either being examined for how we might digitize it, or it already has been digitized. It's really just a matter of what is next. Like any object, whether it's a ceiling fan, a piece of chalk, a house plant, (laughs) a uh, classroom, everything is just in line for how do we mediate this through digital tools. And that is very strange to think about and to think about like, well, wait, why, why aren't we setting aside zones of life to be organic and to be digital, you know, undigital and free of that, just like we would set aside national parks to be free of development. And um, it is really weird, but I don't see... I don't see quite as much pushback as I would expect. And I think um, just in the last five years, the rate of acceleration of the digitization of the classrooms has been very alarming to me. And, um, and, and I think that it's going to come at, at, at great expense um, eventually when you see students growing up uh, who are being permitted very little time Uh, away from digital devices. That interview was published in February, and that was before these COVID-19 lockdowns at schools and colleges shifted education even more to tech. I mean, boy, do we need those havens from technology now. In fact, the most popular episode we did all year involves Zoom. 
And the question of why spending so much time on Zoom can be so tiring. Turns out Zoom fatigue is kind of a real thing as far as how the human brain responds to video calls. We got this story when my colleague Stephen Nunu interviewed Brenda Widerhold, a licensed clinical psychologist who runs the nonprofit Interactive Media Institute. She had written an editorial about this phenomenon, and so she had really dug into it in her research. And one of the first things I found was the science behind it, which uh, Jeremy Balinson, who leads the Virtual Human Interaction Lab at Stanford, is doing a lot of studying of this right now. They're doing a research study right now looking at this, and there's a whole science behind the reason that we're so exhausted at the end of the day if we have too many video conferences. So not just, you know, I don't, I don't mean to pick on Zoom. It's just a term that's come up on social media. So it happens whether it's Skype or webinars or, or Zoom. Right. Yeah. So can you briefly explain what this concept is, this concept of Zoom fatigue? Sure. So it's when you feel tired, anxious, worried after you overuse video conferencing. And part of the reason that they're finding uh, is there's a slight lag, no matter how good your internet is, no matter how fast it is, it seems that we have this millisecond, maybe just a few milliseconds delay So the communication isn't in real time, even though it seems like it consciously, our brains subconsciously pick up on the fact that things aren't quite right. And the fact that things are out of sync and we're accustomed to them being in sync when it's person to person, face to face communication, our brains try to look for ways to overcome that lack of synchrony. And after the end of a few calls a day, it starts to become exhausting to us. Yeah, so that's really interesting. I hear the term synchronous communication, synchronous learning here in education a lot to refer to Zoom calls where the teacher is on with a class of students and they're learning live and in the moment. But you're saying that the way our brains perceive it, it is not as synchronous as it is in person? That's correct. So face-to-face, we have synchronous communication. We also have other things that help us feel good when we're face-to-face in conversations. We have releases of dopamine. We have the hormone oxytocin being secreted. So those are feel-good hormones and, and chemicals that come up. And then we have all the body language and the cues. You know, you see a person just barely move their eyes, do a micro expression, things like that. We can pick up very easily in person, but we don't always pick up those little nuances when we're on a Zoom call. Of course, we spent a lot of time this year on the podcast talking about what it's like to teach during the pandemic. And some of the most moving tape that we aired was in an episode that my colleague Emily Tate did about what it's like to be a first-year teacher during this time. I mean, imagine working for so long to become a teacher, and this is the year you get to start doing it. One of the teachers she talked to was Jerry Zamora, who was just starting out as a 10th grade history teacher in Chicago. For Jerry, one of the greatest challenges was watching the other teachers around them struggle. Burnout, I mean, I think from remote learning was like, is very real. I mean, as a, I think I, I'm not sure what about my experience made it so bearable. I mean, there are certain things I know, like I had, I had a lot of community support. I have really lovely people in my life that um, were willing to hear me out, like to like all my frustrations um, when I needed support during this time. 
like some of my like coworkers who are veteran teachers were having an incredibly difficult time through this. Um, and like, I saw, like, I made the comparison to them that it just felt like I was seeing all these lovely plants like wilt. And I, it killed me because like, you know, I'm just a sapling. I want to grow up to be like them. And if I'm seeing them wilt, I mean, it's going to be, it, it's, it's discouraging. Um, but I think like, there we got to a point, especially to having these constant conversations with each other once a week, we got to a point where we're like, well, remote learning is just like, we're, we're just doing our best. Like we're not going to, if we go in with these expectations of like how it's going to go, I mean, at least like for some of my teacher friends and I, we were just like, well, we, we have to just put ourselves out there and make the time for them. And if they come perfect, but like the students, um, but they're also, I mean, it's a pandemic on their end too. A lot of like, at least my kids for sure, like that I was able to keep in contact with, they were going through a lot of battles. And the biggest project we took on for the podcast this year was an eight-part series that gave an in-depth view of what college life was like during the fall. This is the Pandemic Campus Diaries series. We asked six students and five professors to send us audio reflections all semester. And every other week during the fall, we put out a new episode with highlights of what we got back. On that series, one thing that really came through for me was the anxiety some professors had when they were asked to teach in physical classrooms during COVID-19. Like this clip from our first episode in August. This is Rachel Davenport, a professor at Texas State University. When I think about my biggest concern for the semester, at first, all the things I'm actively thinking about rush to mind. Um, Will the new tech work the way I need it to? Will a student try to rebel against wearing a mask? Um, How will I ensure assigned seats for hundreds of students? But if I take a step back and explore the real fear that I have, what I'm most concerned about is that one of my students will get sick enough that they are forever affected or sick enough that they don't make it. And then if that happens, will I wonder Did they catch it in my class? Could I have done something different to have prevented it? Maybe I didn't pay enough attention to mask use or keep them maximally separated. Maybe I wasn't present enough on Zoom so they felt compelled to come to class in person instead. What if a student gets really, really sick because of my class? We followed these same characters all semester. And the good news is that Professor Rachel Davenport, who you just heard, ended up convincing her department chair to let her teach online instead of in person. And none of her students ended up getting really sick from COVID. At the end of the series, she reflected on the experience. I can't help but feel like, right, but we were playing Russian roulette. Like, you don't play Russian roulette, and then if if the bullet isn't in the chamber when you pull the trigger, you don't say, like, oh, I was right to play this. (laughs) It was still a terrible idea. Um, You just got really lucky. So... I don't know. I I personally think staying open put a lot of people at risk and put a lot of faculty um, in a position of having to do way more work than they needed to. So for this series, I got hours and hours of tape from our diarists, and there was so much good material I wanted to run but, but didn't have time to get in. There's one scene in particular that I wish I had included, and so I'm going to share it here. It happened on Election Day at Purdue University. In some ways, it still feels like that election from November is not quite over. And I was really struck by what Joseph Ching, our student diarist at Purdue, sent in. Joseph, he's actually a reporter at the student newspaper there at Purdue. And on election day, he learned 
just how politically divided his campus is. And I, and I saw these three guys. Um, they were bearing American flags with mega hats. And immediately as my reporting self was like, Yes, go, go talk to them. What's the deal here? We're just walking around supporting our president. They ended up uh, wanting to kind of walk through academic campus, walk through residential campus, because they wanted to elicit reactions and elicit, um, you know, either support or, or jeering. But they said actually most of the reactions that they've got is, is really positive. And uh, as I walked, it, it was a mix. Um, but there were a lot of people that were honking or, you know, giving them positive encouragement. And there were also some others that were just like driving around, driving past them and just like shouting epithets. Um, but when, I, when we were walking down through academic campus, we start to hear uh, some kind of, uh, you know, rap track or like some kind of like, you know, uh, soundtrack. <laughs> and, and, and the track was F.U. Trump. But then I saw this group that was coming. It was a group of uh, people that were holding cardboard signs. Um, one had a megaphone. And yeah, they were just kind of uh, shouting. And, and I think uh, immediately then I just wanted to talk to them because I, I thought that the, there was a conflict brewing. Curious, so just to make this clear for people, he spots these three Trump-supporting students wearing Make America Great Again hats and carrying a big American flag, they're walking through campus. And then there are these other students, mostly in, like, sweatshirts, and one of those is carrying a megaphone, following behind the Trump supporters, hurling insults and taunts. Uh, When I talked to them, they were... really wanted to, I guess, show the Purdue community that Trumpism does not represent... America and that they've wanted other people to feel included and so they wanted to be the people that represented Purdue and I, I, I found this strategy really perplexing because uh, they the way that they approached the Trump supporters was they went and sort of antagonized them by just following them around campus. I was filming this for about like 10 minutes I think yeah, it kind of made me realize a little bit about how polarized the climate is in that I, I tried to ask, like, w- like, what is the goal of the these, like, anti-Trump people? Are they, are, they, are they trying to engage with them or are they just trying to, like, show a scene? And I think their purpose really was to have this scene rather than rather than actually, um, you know, trying to have a productive conversation because they, they weren't really attempting to do that. And I think, you know, both sides weren't really acknowledging that and they didn't really want to have that conversation. It was more of kind of shouting, shouting at each other. 
and and I hope that this isn't representative of of what America is and and but but at the same time it it sort of is <laughs> to me that clip gets at an important theme because one of the things that's probably missing the most at colleges during the pandemic is having them be a place where students meet and get to know people from various backgrounds and hopefully break down some of these divisions. That's just mostly not happening when people are supposed to stay six feet apart, wear masks, and pretty much isolate to their own rooms or small groups of people they already know. And meanwhile, the country is going through this time of such intense polarization. It seems like we need higher ed to serve this role of being a melting pot more than ever. Anyway, 2021 is here, Vaccines are here, and there's hope that this year in-person interactions will gradually start to come back. We will be listening and sharing perspectives of educators and students on this podcast, and we hope you'll stay with us as we do. Thanks again for listening, and Happy New Year. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Each week, we bring you stories and interviews about how education is changing. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Ed Surge Podcast wherever you listen and take a minute to give us a rating or review. I noticed we got a, actually a bunch of new reviews over the holiday break, and I really appreciate that. Thanks so much. What was your favorite episode of the podcast? Or what should we dig into in 2021? Let me know on Twitter. I'm at, at @jryoung, or shoot me an email at jeff at edsurge.com. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. Thanks to the whole Ed Surge newsroom. You heard all their voices here on this episode. And thanks, as always, to Tony Wan, our managing editor. We'll be back next week with more on how education is changing. Thanks for listening.